Well, we open our Bibles to First John this morning. We'll be starting a new series in First John. It is a wonderful book. After John's Gospel was written sometime later, John wrote a number of epistles which are recorded for us in the Scriptures. And they have many wonderful doctrines, doctrines about brotherly love and uh, the blessings of knowing God and forgiveness of sins and continues a lot of the, the doctrines that he was teaching in the book of John, the, the gospel of John. And it's a very wonderful book to read. Of course, John is not writing in a perfect utopian society. Uh, there are a lot of problems afflicting the church in his day and he also deals with a lot of those. Why don't we read the first chapter together well, through verse 2 of the second chapter. That makes kind of the first section. So First John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard and proclaimed also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things that our joy may be complete. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him to be a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the Apostle John the one whom your son loved in a special way, the one who has written for us this letter that we read today. And we pray, Lord, that as we read it, our hearts would be filled with joy, would be enlightened to the truth, would be drawn nearer to you. Encourage us in this, in Jesus' name. Amen. So he starts off the introduction of the book talking about the things which we have seen, touched, heard. This is uh, important in John's mind, and that's why he starts with this. But not that he says that, 
which. He's not talking just about Jesus, but he's talking about Jesus, his ministry, his word, the entire word of God. And it's important for us to think about that because in this letter, he's probably writing it rather late. I would put it in probably the 90s AD, well after Christ has gone up, ascended to heaven, uh, after some of the other apostles had already been martyred. And he's bringing about this letter because the false teachers are again attacking the church. They're distorting the truth. They're corrupting the truth of God, teaching strange doctrines. And he's writing here to combat some of those heretics of his day. And when we read through 1 John, you know, the people he's battling against are very different than the people John, or Paul and Peter were battling against. Uh, different than the people James was bat- were battling against. And it's interesting as we go through to see the problems that he had and the truths that he uses to counter them, because those truths can be a great encouragement to us. I know sometimes we get kind of bogged down, oh, yet another section of condemnations. But those condemnations help us to see what's wrong and to choose what's right. You know, it's like somebody telling us that, no, you shouldn't eat that food, it's poisonous. Eat the other food. And we might think, oh, you're condemning this food, but isn't it great? We know not to touch something that's bad for us. And in the, the Bible's repeated teaching against the different heresies, we learn the things we should recognize as poisonous, toxic, and we know the things then that are safe and good and right and will draw us nearer to God. And so it's very important to understand those things. Now, John is also a bit harsher in his condemnations than some of the other apostles, perhaps because more time has gone by and more trouble has arisen by it. But he calls them antichrists, these teachers, because they are teaching against Christ, although they use his name. And so his teaching here, We'll go through line by line through the book, uh, finding the great gems and the joys and the warnings, and hopefully we'll all be enriched and encouraged in it. Now, you might notice when you read this first four verses that it reminds you of his gospel quite a bit. Uh, In John chapter 1, the first four verses, I'll read them. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was the life, and the life was the light of men. So a lot of parallels between these two passages. Uh, John in his uh, gospel is focusing on the teaching of Jesus as the eternal God. He was not created. He has no beginning. Everything that was created was created through him. Nothing that was created apart from him creating it. So all the heretics that came about in the early church and persist to today who insists that Jesus was a created being, not eternal God. Uh, John has written about that in his gospel to condemn it. Here in 1 John, he's not so much talking about the pre-existence of Christ, which is a great theological truth and a great reality for us, that he really is God. But here he's touching more upon the teaching that has been from the beginning, 
the things that we have heard, the things that we have seen. Uh, it doesn't just start with Jesus' incarnation, but the Old Testament is full of references to the coming Messiah, references to the Christ, references to the salvation of God, which will appear in the future. And one of John's great purposes here is to help the people understand that that has been fulfilled, that the Christ has come, that the promise that goes all the way back to Genesis of the seed of Adam crushing the head of Satan, that has come in Christ. And all those great and wondrous promises leading towards salvation, we now see the salvation of God revealed. And so in this epistle, he starts talking about that, what we have seen, what we have heard. Notice it's we have seen, not I. This causes a few people to struggle. Is he using the royal we? Does he have a mouse in his pocket? Uh, is he talking about the church and the power and authority of the church, as it has sometimes been mistakenly made? I would say no, he's talking about the witness of the apostles, right? what we have seen. He's talking about those who were there, those who were present. Uh, Jesus tells them in John 15, 26 and 27, and when the Helper comes, the Holy Spirit, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. He's speaking to the apostles in that passage. And because they were with him throughout his entire life, they were witnesses to all things. And that they therefore are eminently qualified to talk about those things. Now you might wonder, well, what about Paul? Paul also is called an apostle. He gives his witness. And I want to read what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 through 11. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it is I or they, we also preached, and so you believed. And so Paul is admitting that while he wasn't there with Christ and he was a persecutor of Christ, he also, though, did see Christ. Christ appeared to him. Christ taught him. And the things he has received from Christ are the things he is teaching to the people. And so that's important. The we here is those faithful witnesses who were with Christ, who have been appointed by Christ, who are going to give the things that God has given to them. The things which we heard, John says. Having been with him in the whole ministry, they'd heard all of his teaching. 
And that was important when they considered Matthias to replace Judas uh, in Acts chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. They, they wanted to pick somebody from all the men who have accompanied us during the entire time that the Lord went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become a witness to his resurrection. And so they were appointing a new apostle to represent Christ and to testify about the resurrection. And the choice had to be from somebody who had been there as a witness. So I think that's the point John is making here is that we are those witnesses. We saw it. I remember as an atheist, when somebody's trying to talk to me about the Bible, I'm like, well, that wasn't that written in the dark ages. Uh, I had no idea. There are a lot of evidence that shows that it was indeed written in the first century. And it is written by eyewitnesses. And now that I know God, I know the truth of it. I know that these men are eyewitnesses and they were eminently qualified to talk about what Jesus had said and what he had taught. And being guided by the Holy Spirit, they focus on the things God wants to reveal to us in their Gospels and in their letters. And so it was quite important in Jesus' ministry. We note when we read it, particularly if you read John or any of the other Gospels, was not Jesus teaching new ideas. He was explaining the things of the Old Testament rightly. Uh, the men of his day, the, the teachers of his day, he condemned rather harshly in Matthew 15, 7 to 9. He calls them hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is from, far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. And so his ministry was about drawing the people back to God, drawing the people back to the Old Testament teachings and scriptures. Scriptures which he would fulfill, but the teachings that were the truth and the important thing for the people to know and important for us to know. The Old Testament rightly interpreted, which Christ can do, and which the New Testament does, is the message that Christ was teaching, the message they heard, the message they are now proclaiming. And they heard it straight from the mouth of God. Now Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is all from the mouth of God. All scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired by God. It's breathed out by him. It's important to us because it is faithful and true and from him to us. So they heard about all the doctrines of the Old Testament explained by Christ. And he said to them in Matthew 5, 17 and following, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, to do everything that they require of the people. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota or, nor one dot, not the least stroke of the pen or the smallest letter, will pass away from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
On Jesus' day, the scribes and the Pharisees thought they were the most righteous. Uh, how can you be more righteous than them? By the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. No other way. God's righteousness is what's required. Remember, a man came up to Jesus, the rich young ruler. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Matthew 19, 16 and 17. Jesus said to him, why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. There was that one, of course, God, Christ, but this man doesn't recognize Christ as Christ. If you would enter life, Jesus said, keep the commandments. They then went on to discuss basically the Ten Commandments. That is the requirement to keep those. How many of us keep that? Zero, right? There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who seeks God, none who does right. How then can our righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, because of Christ's righteousness. Christ had no sin. The Bible tells us that a number of times. Jesus himself says, you know, I tell you the truth, but you do not believe me. Which one of you can convict me of sin? Now, can you imagine a pastor standing up and saying that in front of the congregation? Better not be married. <laughs> the wife knows. But so does everybody else. You know, Jesus is able to boldly stand in front of the, his enemies and say, which of you can convict me of sin? He had no sin. He, he had perfect righteousness. And that's what he was talking about when he talked about fulfilling the law. All the righteous things that God said, if you do these things, you shall live. He did them all. And he earned for himself life, eternal life. And he shared that with his people. That reward. In the same way, because we see his perfect righteousness and our sinfulness, we understand the need for righteousness is outside of us. My righteousness will never be good enough. Even if we were to start over today and not count all of my old sins against me, my righteousness would still be, as the prophet says, filthy rags. It would not be enough. But God had promised in the Old Testament in Jeremiah thirty-three sixteen, in those days, talking about the Messiah, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Our righteousness comes not from ourselves, but from Christ's righteousness imputed to us. And that's what Paul speaks of in Romans 4, 6 through 8. He says, David speaks of the blessings of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Our sin is taken upon Christ and paid for on the cross. His righteousness then is given to us. And we do this through, of course, faith. By trusting and believing in him. Believing that he will pay for our sins. Believing that he will impute his righteousness to us. That we might have that that reward of eternal life. And so these are the things they heard, and what they heard, they then spoke. And they were really, they felt compelled to do that. Remember when they were arrested and beaten in Acts chapter 4? The Sanhedrin calls the apostles in and charged them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, 
Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them, because the people were all praising God for what had happened. God had done a miracle through them in front of the people, and so they couldn't touch them. But know what they said, even though threatened. They said, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They had seen the most amazing and most wondrous thing the world has ever experienced. The, the, the thing the whole world had been waiting for, and all the people of Israel had been waiting for. They'd seen it with their eyes. They'd heard it with their ears. They'd experienced it. And now they were telling about it. Because that is what they wanted to do and what they needed to do. Now, they taught and the people, they spoke of the things they'd seen and heard. And what they'd seen and heard is what Jesus said. And Jesus said in John 14, 21, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And so what was their message? Keep the commandments. Do what God has commanded. Were they able to do it? Well, nobody has ever been able to do it, but we endeavor to greater obedience. We repent of our sins, as John will talk about later. If we are careful to repent of our sins, God will be faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And that forgiveness comes to us through Christ and in Christ. And so he says, you know, what we have heard, but also what we have seen. They saw Jesus' life. Uh, we have the, the old saying, do what I say, not what I do. Uh, Jesus doesn't say that. He says, do what I say and do what I do. Uh, his life was one that was lived right, rightly in front of the people, and they witnessed him with their very eye. We're told in John 1.14, the world be word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. They saw him, the Lord of heaven, born as a man, teaching them, living with them, working with them. They got to see every part of his life. You know, it's nice to have a mentor and a role model in life. A father should be that to his children and a mother. But we have Christ as their role model, the perfect role model. The perfect man. <coughs> and so they were able to see him. And when he declared himself to be the Son of God, they were not very receptive, though, were they? In John ten thirty six and following, he says, Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent in the world, you are blaspheming, because he said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped their hands. And so the people were seeing not just the way he lived, his righteous life, his righteous teaching, but they were seeing the mighty miracles he did. And John is saying, I have seen with my own eyes these miracles. I know they are true. 
And in the modern world, people deny that there could be miracles. And so they assume that the Bible is lying and they make up then new truths for themselves. But John is saying, no, we witnessed these things. We saw them with our eyes. We looked upon him who was crucified and who was raised from the dead. We looked upon him who ascended into heaven. And so we can bear witness about that. And that's, that's what he's talking about when he says, and we touched him. You know, he was a man born under the law, raised as a normal Israelite. In Galatians 4, Paul says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So even though he was God, the son of God, he was subject to the authority of the law by God so that he could redeem those who were supposed to be under the law. In other words, to be our substitute, he had to become one of us. And that's critical to our understanding. He wasn't, you know, he's not just waving his hand and saying, okay, your sins are gone. Well, no, he's coming here and living the sinless life and giving that to us and taking our sins and nailing it on the cross. And that's the gospel in a nutshell. And he says, he came to redeem those who under the law so that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And so he was born a man. They could see him. They could touch him. But more than that, it really reminds us of what happened after he was resurrected. They thought he was a ghost. Remember? A spirit without a body. In Luke 24, 36 and following, he says, they, they were thinking about him and about what had happened, and he appears to them. And he says, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands, my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, and you see that I have. And when he had said this, they showed, he showed them their hand, his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieving for joy, and they were marveling, and they, he said to them, Do you have anything to eat? And they gave him some broiled fish, and he ate it before them. And so I think part of what John is referring back to is that great scene where they thought he was dead. And... He was appearing to us as a spirit, and he is demonstrating to them, no, I am here physically. I have physically arrived. See the scars. You know, touch my skin. I am flesh and blood. I am alive, not dead. And it is necessary for him to be alive because if he wasn't, it would show that the sins hadn't been paid for. I remember what we've talked about before. There's no end to the payment for my sins if I pay for it myself. I can never afford to pay for it all. For Jesus, and so I will stay dead and I will stay in hell. For Jesus to be raised from the dead bodily means that he did pay it all. My sin was given to him. His payment is full. Well, how can a man's payment be full? Well, because he really is God. If he was not God, he could not pay the price for my sins. If he was not truly man... He could not be an adequate substitute for me. And so being both God and man is very important. And John brings that out 
the necessity of him being both God and man for our salvation. And he says, also by touching him, they could be assured that it wasn't an illusion, it wasn't a dream, it wasn't a vision, but it was reality. He showed that he was not just a spirit, but that he was alive. And it says this is concerning the word of life, the end of chapter verse 1. The Father has life in himself, John tells us in John 5, 26 and following. And so he's granted the Son also to have life in him and given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Chapter 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who comes to me and believes in me shall not die. Do you believe this? That word of life. Now, chapter 2, most people take as a little parenthetical expression to explain this word of life. The word that was made manifest, or the the word of life made manifest. And in him we see what it means really to have eternal life. We see that in the perfection of his life that is required for eternal life. We see that in the way he lived. And that's been shown to us. Remember Paul's great hymn in 1 Timothy 3.16? Probably a hymn that was sung in that day. He said, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was made manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. And so this word of life is telling us that he is alive. And that is for us too. He says, we have seen it. He stresses it again. We testify to it. We are eyewitnesses. We are not, you know, this isn't third person hearsay or fourth or fifth person. It isn't some story we read in a book. It is the reality that we have experienced. And we proclaim it to you. And that proclamation is really what John is driving to here. It's not enough for truth to be truth. It has to be known and it has to be believed and be believed and to be known. It has to be told to you. That truth is about eternal life. Everybody loves John 3.16, but remember, I always like to read a few more verses. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son to... into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So his incarnation is about saving people of every nation, every kindred, every tribe, every tongue. Whosoever believes in him is not condemned, verse 18, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. Talks about this in 1 John chapter 1, a little beyond what we'll get to today. Because their deeds were evil. Jesus says, I am the bread of life in John 6.35. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and raise him up on the last day. You know, truly, the promise of eternal life that John is speaking of is is a great blessing, a great encouragement, a great joy in our hearts. And remember that that is also a great gift of God. We've spoken of Ezekiel 36, 25 and following before. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey them. And so what a great and glorious gift this, this life is that Jesus has, that Jesus brings to us. And now he moves on to what I think is the key in this passage and really a key in his book and in his thinking both in the book of John and in his epistles. And that is verse 3. All that we know about eternal life, all that we have heard from Jesus, all that we see in his word, the, the Old Testament, the New Testament, everything about his incarnation, his crucifixion, his death, his burial, his resurrection, all of these things we are proclaiming to you. Everything we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. These things proclaimed are necessary for them to do. Uh, They they were under a compulsion, under the command of God to reveal the things of God. It was one of the reasons he taught them was so that they could go to the world and share the truth of the gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 16 and 17, If I preach the gospel, that gives me no grounds for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. That stewardship we understand, he talks about in Acts chapter 20 to the Ephesian elders when he was on his way to be arrested and sent to Rome. In Acts chapter 20, verse 26 through 28, said, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit have made you overseers. Be careful for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So he claims to be innocent of the blood of all men. Why? because he shared with them the whole counsel of God, all the doctrine of God, all the doctrines that God had entrusted to him. And those are really necessary to believe. And that's what John is talking about here when he says, we proclaim these things that you may, so that you may have fellowship with us. The basis of our fellowship is not that we're compatible. It's not that we like each other. It's not that you've done something good for me and I love you back. The basis for our fellowship is that we have a common understanding of our common God. And 
you know, even believers, when they have very disparate views on things, what happens when they come together? Sparks. Fire. Sometimes troubles. Even though the other party, both parties are believers, it can be a disaster. And that's why John is saying, you know, I tell you all these things. I teach you all this doctrine. And Paul is also saying, I, I give you this doctrine. And the purpose being that we should be able to have fellowship. We won't have arguments and fights if we understand God's word rightly. We won't be divided. We'll be united by doctrine. Uh, people like to teach today, oh, doctrine divides, so we should avoid doctrine. But what ends up happening, if you don't have doctrine, you don't know the truth, you don't know God, you're going to be in conflict with people, especially those who know him better. And so this fellowship comes about through the things that have been proclaimed. Paul says in Romans 10, How shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they haven't heard? And how shall they hear without someone preaching? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? It is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For as Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. You know, it starts with that initial faith. The unbeliever doesn't know God, can't know the things that you as a believer would know, can't believe what you believe, because it would be foolishness to him, Paul says. And so the first step in having fellowship, true fellowship, is that faith, that faith that was, as Jude says, once for all delivered unto the saints. And there's nothing really quite so good as having that close fellowship, though, right? And a real family, a good family, there's nothing like coming home, being with the ones you love, experience their tender care for you, their concern for you, and the concern you are able to have back, and sharing one another's burdens. Uh, how pleasant and good it is when brothers dwell together in unity, Psalm 133, verse 1. There's a real special connection that can happen in our lives with those who share our understanding, who have a common set of beliefs. It's one of the reasons why I think even though we're very small, we have such tight fellowship because we share a common belief. Even though we don't share common experience or background, we have a common understanding of God. Now, they have proclaimed the truths about Christ for the purpose of that fellowship. And that fellowship really has to be based on that faith. In Second uh, Chronicles 19, we have a sad story, 18 and 19. Jehoshaphat, who was a good king of Judah, was helping Ahab, the wicked king of Israel. And if you remember Ahab, pretty much the most reprehensible man in the whole Bible, I think, at least as far as his life went. So Jehu comes to him, Second Chronicles 19.2. Jehu, the son of Hananiah, the seer, went out to meet Jehoshaphat and said to him, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, the wrath of God has gone out against you. 
So God was angry with him because he showed love to his brother, his Israelite brother. And what was the problem? Well, the problem was Ahab hated God and was working against him. And Jehoshaphat loved God. How can you help that person? How can you have the fellowship? Now, you might quote to me Luke six twenty-seven and following. I say, to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. you know, what's the difference? What's the distinction? Well, the first one is talking about helping them in their sin. And the second one is showing mercy to them in the hopes of the gospel of Christ coming to them. Not in helping them sin, which is what, you know, by fighting a war as an ally of Ahab, who was an enemy of God, Jehoshaphat had made himself an enemy of God. And so the point being, you know, this fellowship that we have one with another is really based first upon our faith, our common faith. If we don't have that, there's not going to be any ability to have fellowship. And if we do try to have fellowship with those who don't believe, you know, if we do the, you know, let's join the Muslims and the Catholics and, you know, march on Washington hand in hand, God's not going to be happy with us. We can't be helping our enemies in their cause. So that's the first part. But then the second one is the knowledge, the understanding. In that first one, though, Paul talks about it extensively in 2 Corinthians 6. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, in the Old Testament law, it was forbidden to, to plow your field with a cow and a donkey yoked together. And illegal to plant two different kinds of grain in the field at the same time. And God was trying to show you need to be separate from the wicked. And so don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Now, yes, this passage is often horribly misused and mistreated. But the point being, we cannot join in fellowship with those who are enemies of God. We should fair, share a like precious faith. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 1 and following, If I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called by one to one hope, that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You know, the true unity comes when believers are joined together in their faith with God. And that unity brings great blessing and great joy and great comfort to the hearts of his people and peace. You know, when there is no peace, it is because... Either some don't believe or some don't really understand. 
And when they don't believe, yes, there can be no peace. But when they don't understand, it's, it's a heartbreaking thing for the church. Because we should be teaching all of the doctrines, as John says, all the things that they have seen, all the things that they have heard, all the things that have been written by those who are witnesses throughout the entire Old and New Testament. By knowing those things, we have that common ground to come together and to be one and to be united in Christ. And that is where our fellowship and our communion should be with each other. Now, some will say, oh, I don't need that. I don't need church. I can be happy, you know, worshiping God alone. But John is saying, no, you know, you fellowship with us because our fellowship is with God. You're not getting fellowship with God apart from God's people. You get fellowship with God as one of his people, as part of his body, not as a lone wolf not as a sole believer in your world, your own private world. You know, we have been reconciled to God while we were enemies. And that reconciliation with him reconciles us with all of his children. And what we really need is that once for all delivered unto the faith, uh, delivered unto the saints, faith. As Jude said, beloved, though I was eager to write you about your our common salvation, I found it necessary to write you appealing for you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That contending for the faith we just finished Jude. Hard, long battle. And now John is going on to the same topic. In 1 John, the apostle of love is telling us we need to battle for that once for all delivered unto the saints' faith. We need to have that common doctrine so that we can have that fellowship so that we can have that, that life together that gives us great joy, that your joy may be complete, he says, that gives us that comfort, that assurance, that if I stumble, there's somebody there to snatch me from the fire, there's somebody to pick me up, there's somebody to be with me and encourage my heart, because we know the same God and we know the same truth, and we love him and love them. Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 20 and 21. I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. What is Jesus praying that because our faith in him is true, that we will be united together in him. We will be one just as he and the Father are one. He and the Father are one because they all believe the same things, want the same things, have the same plan, and live together and submit to each other, or Christ submits to the Father in the way that's ordained. And so they are able to be one. And that's the model then for us, that we not have divisions amongst us over doctrine, but that we study the word and come to a common understanding. And then we may enter into that joy that John asks for. We write these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, some have your joy, uh, some have our joy, but our joy is probably a better reading. The joy of all of us as believers, fellowshipping together, and fellowshipping together, not just joy with each other, but joy with the Lord.
Jesus says in Matthew 25, 21, and the master will say to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. You know, our uniting, our fellowship, our communion, and it's the same word, our communion with Christ, our communion with God is also the same as our communion with each other. We're all part of God's family. We are part of the body of Christ. And we need to be working together. And, <coughs> and that then will bring us the joy that is complete that is in God. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we know how hard it is to live together in peace. We know how difficult it is at times to overcome divisions and troubles between ourselves, how hard it is to overcome bitterness that we do not share the common doctrine, but that we disagree with each other. And pray, Lord, that you would turn us, rather than battling each other, and looking to find advantage in arguments over each other, but turn our hearts, Lord, to your word that we might seek to be united to you in faith and united to your people in truth. Help us, Lord, to see the truth, to love the truth, to desire the truth, to seek the truth in all of our life as we live our lives as believers, as we search your word and worship you and study and pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, having spoken about communion here, our communion with God and communion with each other, we come to Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper. And the basis for it really is that we be united to, to God through Christ, through faith. And we are called upon in the scriptures to prepare ourselves for it by searching our hearts, by dealing with our sin, by dealing with our lack of faith, by dealing with conflicts between the brothers and the believers, and then to come to him humbly and participate in this blessed Lord's Supper. And we remember that in the night he was betrayed, the night before he was crucified, he was having the Passover meal with his apostles that he had appointed. And at that time, he appointed the Lord's Supper. And so we will follow the appointment that he has given as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And so we will do the same. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you that though we were enemies, you have reconciled us through the blood of your Son. We thank you, Lord, that you gave his life to live the perfect holy life that you required of us and that he is able to share then that reward with us. And as we come together today and remember his body broken for us, we ask, Lord, for mercy and grace 
In Jesus' name, amen.